Okay, welcome back everyone. This is uh, another episode of the Domain Query series. This is Domain Query Byzantine Intrigues. Uh, very warm welcome as always to all my SoundCloud subscribers, to all my readers, if you have not already subscribed, uh, either here on Podbean or on my site, please make sure you do so, um, that we will never miss a new upload or a new podcast. Today's um, Domain query uh, is by way of a, a couple of questions submitted to me by uh, my old friend and um, longtime reader, uh, John C911. Uh, I appeared on his podcast way back in, I think, 2018, a uh, long, long time ago, so it's been a while. Um, but, or maybe 2019, I forget exactly. Um, probably 2019. But um, anyway. He, uh, he sent me an email, uh, recently where he, he mentioned, uh, you know, a couple of things here and there. And, uh, he's been injured, uh, for a while now. So, um, he's had to go through an ACL reconstruction and an ACL and meniscus tear, which is just awful. Um, so I really feel for the guy. Um, you know, John, my prayers are with you. This is, uh, not a fun injury. Um, I wish you a speedy recovery. And he's been recovering for six months now. So, um, hopefully you are f- just about back to normal because, uh, an ACL reconstruction is a very difficult and, uh, painful surgery. Uh, for those of you who haven't had the joys, so to speak, of dealing with an ACL reconstruction, um, the knee is one of the most important, uh, m- mobile joints in the body. I mean, they're all mobile, but, this is one of the most fundamental joints in the body. Um, you can't walk without your knee. And when you tear the ACL and the meniscus, um, you are hobbled. Uh, you cannot walk. You cannot run. You cannot lift. You cannot do anything because your knee basically becomes completely unstable. The, the ligaments, uh, tying the, the, the joint together and holding it in place become, uh, badly weakened. And if you, if you tear, uh, if you have an ACL or MCL tear, you're in a lot of trouble. So, um, my martial arts teacher went through, uh, I think an ACL surgery, uh, a couple of years ago, three years ago now. And he was just, he was fit to be tied at the time. It was just horrible for him. Um, and it took him a long time to recover before he could get back on the mat and start moving and start training again. Uh, for him, it was very, very difficult. So it's it's especially devastating to those of us who are active. I mean, if I had to go through it, I would probably lose my mind. Um, so anyway, uh, that aside, uh, one other thing I should point out before I continue, uh, big tech censorship has gone to truly insane levels by now, as I'm sure all of you are aware. Uh, you need to take steps to protect yourself, and you need to do it now. Uh, do not wait any longer. If you are, if you are connecting to the web without a VPN or some form of, um, IP masking, you need to get yourself one. Uh, I'm a big fan of the open router network that the Tor, uh, or the onion router, excuse me. That's not what it's called. Onion router. The Tor network is very good, but it is a bit slow. And it can cause problems um, because the way it works is you connect through three different random 
uh, access points and the each access point in the network knows only what the previous access point sends it. It does not know anything below that level. So this makes it this makes you very hard to track. But you are also exposed to the dangers of a um, a hacked access point. Now, the probability of tapping into a hacked node is pretty low, but it's not zero. So my recommendation is to get yourself a VPN client. Uh, I use one at all times. They're not foolproof. They're not as 100% uh, stable and secure as they advertise, but they are pretty damn good. There are two options that I can uh, offer you deals for. The one is Goose VPN and the other is Surfshark. Um, in my personal opinion, Surfshark is the best value for money VPN client around. You just can't get any better than that. So uh, click on the links in the description box for this video, uh, for this podcast and uh, over on my site and you will get uh, pretty significant discounts. I mean, we're talking like, uh, uh, you know, plus 80% discounts uh, for January. Uh, very, very steep, very impressive discounts for two and three year contracts. So uh, sign up for a VPN today and uh, make sure that you protect your identity on the internet. And with Surfshark, you get unlimited devices, actually with both Goose and Surfshark, you get unlimited devices, unlimited browsers, unlimited connections, and Surfshark um, has one of the best offerings out there. I think only NordVPN has more servers, uh, but NordVPN is more expensive, and NordVPN didn't give me a, an affiliate uh, uh, link, so, you know, screw them. Um, I'll still, uh, I'm still happily using a VPN and will continue to quite happily use a VPN in the future um, whenever mine comes up for, for renewal. Um, it's very, very useful if you want to surf and watch movies and so on. That's just one aspect of it, though. I use it much more for security than anything else. Okay, so getting on to John's question, which is rather important and rather interesting. Uh, he said um, he finished the reading the book he recommended, uh, Lost to the West by Lars Brownworth. I'll leave a link to it in the description box. Um, amazing reading, uh, more on the Byzantine Empire, especially the different leaders that ruled over Constantinople. The number of times the empire should have fallen and yet continued to survive and sometimes prospered. He ends the sentence there. I think what he meant to say was, is amazing at the end. Anyway, uh, by the way, I did have one question on it. Why? What do you think might have happened if the siege of Constantinople in 1453 by the Turks had failed? We know about what happened after the fall of Constantinople with the Ottoman Empire taking over. Also, before the attack, uh, Constantine XI supported John VIII in a position um, of decree of union, joining together the Orthodox and Catholic churches. And during the siege, there was also the last service with both Greek priests and Latin ones standing shoulder to shoulder, with the emperor turning to the Italians who were fighting with them, assuring them that they were now brothers, united by a common bond. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, I do not pretend to be any kind of authority on uh, Byzantine history. I'm not. Um, I'm actually fairly ignorant of the subject. Uh, and John mentioned this book, uh, Lost to the West. I... I honestly don't ever remember recommending it. I definitely never read it. So I'm not going to comment on the book. Uh, feel free to read it on your own time if you want. Um, as I said, there will be a link to it in the description box, no problems. But I, I really have nothing to say about the book. 
I do have something to say about the siege of Constantinople, or of, uh, of Byzantium, um, as it was also known. Uh, so the thing to understand is, by the time we get to 1453, the Byzantine Empire is in very much a state of terminal decline. Uh, if you look at the history of the Byzantines, it is truly astonishing, truly remarkable that this empire lasted for about 1100 years. I mean, the city of, of Constantinople was founded by Emperor Constantine the Great about, you know, in, in the fourth century, and it remained the most powerful and important city in the whole of the Western world, by Western world, I mean Christian world, um, up until the 15th century. And its fall was an absolutely catastrophic event. There's no question of that. There's no doubt about the importance of Constantinople and the devastating consequences um, of its fall. Uh, that being said, the question is, could it have been avoided in the first place? And my answer to that is no. For a number of reasons, the first and most important of which is the schism between East and West. Um, and this is something that John points out very correctly as uh, something that was healed in the final days of the siege, and that's, that's, it's a wonderful thing. But to understand why this is so important, you have to go back even earlier, you have to go back about a thousand years in, in history to, you know, the 5th century um, AD. And you have to start looking at the ways in which the Roman Catholic and uh, Greek Orthodox churches diverged over time. And they really did diverge significantly. Uh, the Greek churches obviously read out all the sermons in Greek because that was the text of the New Testament. Uh, all of the books they had were translated into Greek. Um, including the Septuagint. So the, the Orthodox Church or the Greek Church used the Septuagint as the basis for their Old Testament texts, um, as did the Roman Catholic Church. So there wasn't really a doctrinal difference insofar as which books mattered, um, but there was obviously a huge difference in terms of uh, culture. Now, the best summary that I've ever seen of this, and I haven't read much into it. Uh, I'm quite ignorant on this subject, so you know, any Catholic brothers or Orthodox brothers listening to this, please forgive me if I mischaracterize your faith. I, I do apologize. Uh, this is on me, so uh, please, I hope you will have some patience for a uh, very much an, an, an ignorant uh, brother when I speak about these things. But uh, Giuseppe Filotto, uh, who you may know of as the Kurgan, um, wrote an excellent short book recently called Believe, um, which was all about taking back Christianity and restoring the faith. It's an excellent polemic. Uh, I highly recommend it. It was one of my favorite books of 2020. And it provided a very powerful, very precise summary of why the Catholic traditions are the best. Now, I don't agree with him about this simply because I'm a non-denominational Christian. I don't get involved in these food fights. And to me, they are food fights. Um, back then, 1500 years ago, these were not food fights. These were 
massively important issues of doctrine and extremely consequential. So what is the difference in mindset between East and West? Uh, Giuseppe points it out rather nicely in which he says basically um, the Catholic mindset is one of classification. Everything must be classified and um, put into its proper place. Everything must be categorized. It's a very analytical mindset which says we must explain everything. We must investigate everything. Uh, which is one of the reasons why so many great scientists and philosophers came out of the Catholic tradition. And it's very important. Uh, the modern world as we know it today, the many of the modern miracles that we look at around us would not exist without the Catholic Church. And let's be honest about that. I don't care how much you hate the Catholic Church if you're a Protestant. Um, that is the truth. The world around us today is a direct consequence of all of the great works and all the good things that the Catholic Church did for the world. That is not to say that the Orthodox Church was any worse or any less interested in investigating truth and understanding the natural world around us. It's just that they were m more willing to let slide certain areas into kind of mysticism. And that's always been true of the Orthodox Church. They, they are fine with saying that certain things in Christianity are a mystery. Um, they are fine with not torturing the scriptures too much in terms of finding explanations for things. They just say, look, leave it alone. It's a mystery. Um, my understanding of the Catholic Church's position on the Blessed Virgin Mary is that uh, there are some very strange teachings about her. Uh, which try to explain away how Jesus could have been born sinless if he was born of woman and therefore, uh, you know, was um, exposed to sin in the womb and so on. Okay, but, uh, whatever. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm not an expert in this stuff. I don't pretend to know it. If that's the case, maybe it's the case. But the 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 Catholics would like try to investigate that and and come up with explanations and epicycles for it. The Orthodox guys would just be like, eh. We just accept it. It's okay. Um, which is fine. I, I, I don't argue with either position. If you're comfortable with one or the other, that's up to you. To me, I don't follow Marianism. I don't follow Catholicism. I follow Christianity. I follow my Lord and King and Savior, Jesus Christ. End of discussion. Um, but this difference in mindsets does lead to a very fundamental difference or many fundamental differences in doctrine and um, understanding on and emphasis on certain rituals over other rituals. Uh, and the, the schisms got so bad and the politics got so poisonous uh, and right, like right down to differences in dates for Christmas and dates for Easter and which rites you follow and which ones you emphasize and what you, you know, when Lent starts and when it ends. And it's like, all and and which which uh, birthdays you emphasize and so on and so forth. It's like guys, come on, you know, it's not that big a deal. Um, a series of bans and anathemas were put in place in 1054 A.D., uh, which really devastated the church. I mean, they split it right in two, and that poison chalice 
carried itself forward through time, uh, through the Crusades. And that's where things really start to get messy. The, the, Christ, the, the Roman Catholic world shut itself off from the Eastern world um, 40 or 45, well, 40 years basically, before the Seljuk Turks really started harassing pilgrims going to the Holy Land to visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and worship there and so on. And uh, this was a hugely consequential decision, as we're going to see. The results were terrible because um, when, I think his name was Alexander Komnenos, uh, is that right? Alexander Komnenos. Uh, yeah, Alexios, Alexios I Komnenos um, ruled from 1081 to 1118. Yes, he was the one who sent a desperate plea for help to the Europeans saying that my whole, my, my positions in the East are going to be overrun by the, uh, Saracens, by the Hagarines, if you do not send help. We need to reclaim the Holy Land. Uh, that was sent, I think, in 1095. And, uh, you know, as a result of the Byzantine Seljuk Wars. And, uh, you know, the First Crusade basically, um, you know, he, he had he had tried to make conciliatory measures towards the papacy, but the, the the bitterness of the split was still very fresh and very new. And the Roman Catholic West was very suspicious of the East. Uh, they didn't trust them. They didn't view them as proper Christians. They viewed them as heretics and so on and so forth. And this remained the standard view for hundreds of years. Uh, I mean... It's actually shocking how long it took for the two halves or two sectors of Christianity to finally put aside some of their differences. Um, we don't see it as that big a deal today because today the Catholic Church recognizes the Orthodox Church's sacraments and traditions and says, you know what, you're not a heretic if you follow these or that. You know, If you follow ours or theirs, it's not really a big difference. But that took decades and centuries of reconciliation and by the time the Crusades rolled around, that wasn't on the cards. So you have all of this built-up mistrust and hatred due to, again, in my personal opinion, just food fights over doctrine. But, you know, back then, a thousand years ago, these food fights were actually really important. Um, that resulted in another couple of centuries of misunderstanding culminating in the siege of Constantinople, the sack of Constantinople in 1204. Now, of all the dumb things Christians have done over the centuries, and we've done a lot of really dumb shit, the sack of Constantinople in 1204 was possibly the dumbest thing we've ever done. It was idiotic. I mean, on... I can't even begin to describe how stupid that idea was. I know, I have some vague idea why it happened, okay? There was a lot of tension between the Venetian merchants who were, the, the Venetians who were bringing over the Crusaders, uh, the, the Crusaders for, I think, was it the Third or Fourth Crusade? I forget. Um, my, my history, in, as I said, my history in this uh, area is not very good. Uh, Sack of Constantinople... Internet connection's a bit slow. 
uh, being in palmy bastard land where I am right now. Um, but anyway, in, in 1204, a crusader fleet uh, landed up in, uh, in you know, Byzantium, and uh, they got very pissy um, over a number of uh, issues related to passage and pay, and uh, the Crusaders um, got a bit fidgety and uh, decided to go in and sack the city. There's a combination of the Fourth Crusade. There you go. Uh, they captured loot. Crusader armies captured, looted, and destroyed parts of Constantinople. And this uh, catastrophically brutalized and wounded an already weakened empire. An already weak empire that could not really resist the ravages of the Ottomans in the east and south, uh, and could not recover the Holy Land from uh, Suleiman the Great. You and I know of him as Salahuddin, or Saladin. And, by the way, he was a Kurd. He wasn't your bog-standard Muslim. He wasn't uh, an Arab or a Turk. He was a Kurd. He was well known for instructing his own clerics about uh, what Islam actually says, which was pretty amusing. Uh, he's presented as a model of uh, knightly chivalry and chivalric conduct, thanks to his battles with uh, uh, Richard uh, Coeur de Lyon, or whatever his name was, uh, however you pronounce it, it's French, uh, Richard the Lionheart. But um, he himself uh, was very much a hardcore Muslim, and his 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 uh, not crusades his his um, jihad in the Holy Land and elsewhere se severely weakened the Byzantine Empire and uh, resulted in the destruction of the roughly one hundred year not quite hundred year about ninety seven year uh, kingdom of Utremer, uh which was the kingdom established in the Holy Land after the success of the First Crusade. Uh, if you've ever seen the frankly dreadful movie, Kingdom of Heaven, you'll know what I'm talking about. That that movie got so much of the history wrong, it's just disgraceful. Uh, don't watch it. Watch the director's cut. If you have to watch it, watch the director's cut, which is like a hundred times better. It's still terrible, but you get a lot more of the context and even though Orlando Bloom is a plank of wood throughout most of the movie, he's less of a plank of wood in the director's cut. So it's worth watching. Uh, that part, anyway. Not, not the original movie. Don't bother with that. So, in summary, the sack of Constantinople in 1204 would have to be completely undone. The bands and anathemas of 1054 would have to be completely undone. All of the bad blood between East and West would have to be undone, and that's just not going to happen by the time you get to 1453. Now, I've been to Istanbul. I was there uh, two and a half years ago. Beautiful city. Uh, amazing place. But turning into a, you know, a, a place packed with radical Islamist nutbags now, unfortunately. Um, it was and remains a fortress of a city, very easily defended on multiple sides. The way that the Ottomans got into the city is quite remarkable. 
they were dealing with a weakened empire, but still a formidable one. They were able to um, bring their fleet of warships over land by creating a massive distraction on one side of the city and then basically rolling uh, the ships over logs, you know, huge logs, up hills and down into, um, into you know, beyond the, the great chain across the, the, the harbor of uh, Byzantium. Uh, as it was at the time. It's, you know, it's, it's a well-known um, uh, artifact. Is the, the, the Byzantines had a, a massive chain across the harbor uh, and Greek fire, uh, basically burning pitch, which they could use to launch at ships and burn them. So they were extremely well defended on the seaside and on the land side, um, they could, they, they still had the ability to buffer themselves you know, in this massive fortress. So when the Ottomans attacked, they, they basically carried their fleet over onto the, um, uh, into the, you know, over the harbor and into the river, uh, into the, into the Bosporus, basically. Um, and past that, uh, past the Ottoman, uh, sorry, past the Byzantine defenses. And then, um, I could be wrong about this. I, I may well be wrong about this, but I think, um, they finally won the siege of, uh, Constantinople. Uh, in 1453, it was, it ended effectively, um, I think through treason. Uh, and let me read about this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think they, 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 they essentially, um, they essentially, oh no, they, they didn't, uh, no, I was wrong. Um, they were actually destroyed, finally, and completely destroyed by the uh, forces of Mehmed II. Um, yeah, they they uh, they didn't uh, they didn't surrender or lose because of treason, which is how most fortresses typically fall. If you go to the Golconda Fortress in Hyderabad, for instance, massive fortress on a big hill, uh, that was lost uh, due to treason, basically a treacherous guard opened up a side gate and was paid off and so on. Um, but here, in this case, they, they genuinely were destroyed outright. So, you know, like I said, I don't, um, I don't know the history of this too much. So, in conclusion, or in, to, to summarize all of this, would history have changed much if the siege of 1453 had failed? Probably not, and here's why. You have to look at the background leading up to the siege of 1453 of how splintered and shaken and um, disunited Christendom was. To undo the siege of 1453, you'd have to undo the, the last thousand years of history up until that point. And that just wouldn't have been possible. Would, let's say, now, let's say by some miracle, the siege of 1453 had failed. And the Byzantine, uh, the Byzantines had been victorious and Mehmed II retreated back. Now we're entering into the realm of alternative history, or alternate history. What would have happened then? Well, this is where it gets kind of interesting. The primary characteristic of Islam is that it is a highly aggressive, expansionistic, proselytizing political system disguised as a religion. It is a fake religion. Uh, any examination into Islam will tell you it's a fake religion. It's a man-made myth. Uh, the man, Muhammad, 
almost certainly did not exist the way he's depicted in the Quran, the Hadith, the Tafsir, the Sirah, and the Tahrik. Uh, the Sunnah of Muhammad is almost entirely a fabrication, uh, at least insofar as his biography and his sayings and his revelation are concerned. All uh, plagiarized, all falsified, all uh, redacted back from the 9th and 10th centuries onto the 7th century. The religion known as Islam is almost certainly an Abbasid creation, redacted back from the 8th century and onwards back to the 7th century because they needed a way to control the population that they inherited from the Umayyads and the Umayyads from the uh, Gnostic Christian and or uh, uh, Ebionite uh, heretics that they had uh, inherited their empire from. So, the fundamental characteristic of this faith is that, or this, this ideology, and it is a virulent political ideology, is that when it expands, it expands very rapidly. Because its primary method of conversion is through killing people, forcing them to convert at the point of a sword, or requiring them to pay the jizya tax. That's, those are your only three options in Islam. What happens whenever Islam meets determined, aggressive, skilled opposition that defeats it in battle? It stagnates. It, it immediately goes, you know, runs headfirst into a wall and stops instantly. And that is exactly what happened throughout the history of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans, um, from 1571 onwards, went into terminal decline. Because that was the point at which, at the Battle of Lepanto, they saw the complete destruction of their fleet. Right, And then, uh, in 1683, if you don't know this, you need to take this date down. September 11, 1683. That's the date of the final siege of Vienna. That's the date on which um, the armies of Jan Sobieski, Jan III Sobieski of Poland, and uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, I forget, European royalty, don't ask me which Roman Emperor it was, but the forces of the Christian West uh, completely destroyed the Ottoman land forces. I mean, wiped them out. It was the largest mass cavalry charge in history down the slopes um, towards the city of Vienna, which was uh, it was uh, uh, the, the 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 Kallenberg charge, I think it was called. Absolutely amazing moment. Um, from that moment on, the Ottoman Empire went into severe and terminal decline. It never recovered. That's exactly what would what would have happened had the siege of Constantinople failed in 1453. Uh, would the Byzantines have recovered? Mm, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I can't answer that one. Uh, the historical forces at the time probably were stacked against it because you can't look at Islam and the West and, and Christianity fighting each other in isolation as these isolated pockets or battles. You have to also look at what was going on in the Christian kingdoms of the Rus. Um, up north and to the east in Russia. The reason why the Russians have such a proud and strong history 
of standing up for Christianity is precisely because of the fall of Constantinople and the rise of Moscow as like the third Rome. Um, would Russia have been able to fight off the uh, Turco, Turkic, uh, was it Turco-Mongol hordes that had invaded it? Um, I don't know. I mean, at the time, the evidence was very much against it. Uh, the 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 Russians were really struggling, and the Russians continued to struggle into the 17th century against European Christians invading from the West. So, you know, I think the the lesson to take away from all of this, if anything, from this whole rambling diatribe about um, whether Constantinople could have been saved or Byzantium could have risen again or so the lesson to take away from all of it comes back to what I said at the beginning of this discussion. Stop with the stupid food fights. Stop arguing over matters of doctrine. Start paying attention to what our Lord said. Stop worrying about whether this right or that right or this apostle or that apostle or this tradition or that tradition or this date or that date is correct. Stop it. Just stop it. History for the last thousand years has taught us that we have bigger problems to worry about. So, shut up. Stop bitching about why his tradition is more, uh, or your tradition is more valid than his tradition. I don't care. As long as you are not espousing outright blasphemy and heresy against what the Bible says, as long as you are not a progressive Christian, as long as you believe that Jesus was sent down to die, Jesus is the begotten Son of God, who has coexisted eternally with the Lord, because that's what the Bible says, um, and that he was sent down to die on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead three days later, as long as you believe in that, and as long as you try to follow what he said you should do, stop it. Just stop with the arguing and get on with the actual fight, which is staring us in the face. That, to me, is the true lesson of 1453. And I think, uh, as John points out in his email, that is exactly what the defenders of Constantinople did at the end. They put aside their differences, they banded together, they came together as one, and they fought for their lives against an enemy dedicated to their destruction. And, you know, in fairness to them, they did the best they could under very, very difficult circumstances. You know? um, would that we all uh, have a chance to stand up for our God and our, our faith the way that those men did. So, food for thought. Uh, anyway, this has gone on for quite long enough, and I need to get some sleep because it's bloody late. Um... This has been Domain Query, Byzantine Intrigues, and I am Didact, signing off.